You are listening to the Just Powers podcast, a series devoted to supporting and disseminating the work of researchers, activists, artists, and theorists that provide conceptual tools for imagining feminist and decolonial energy transition for more livable futures for all. The Just Powers podcast is made possible by support from Future Energy Systems, Canada First Research Excellence Fund, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Cool Institute of Advanced Study, Campus Saint-Jean, and the University of Alberta. Today, we will be reading a selection of chapters from Isabel Stenger's 2015 book, In Catastrophic Times, Resisting the Coming Barbarism. The book was translated from French to English by Andrew Goffey and published by Open Humanities Press. The full book is available to download for free online at www.openhumanitiespress.org. Open Humanities Press, or OHP, is an international community of scholars, editors, and readers, and the press focuses on critical and cultural theory. By partnering with a number of groups and institutions, OHP acts on the principles of access, scholarship, diversity, and transparency in order to explore grassroots solutions to the crisis in humanities publishing. In Catastrophic Times offers a welcome intervention into the current state of global political impasses and ecological catastrophe by setting out a clear account of how the quote-unquote cold panic induced by looming ecological crises such as climate change is actively produced by the managers of the status quo. Stengers claims it is the convergence of governance without legitimacy, with enclosed knowledges and the cult of expertise that has produced a general state of panicked political impotence. Against this mode of governance, Stengers offers a series of tactical experiments from paying attention as intervention to acts of scientific commoning that seek to seize environmental issues and socio-technical problems as political questions in order to resist the coming barbarism. Isabelle Stengers is Professor of Philosophy at the Université Libre de Bruxelles. She is trained as a chemist and philosopher and has authored and co-authored many books on the philosophy of science. We will begin by reading chapter one of In Catastrophic Times. The chapter is titled Between Two Histories. We live in strange times, a little as if we were suspended between two histories, both of which speak of the world become global. One of them is familiar to us. It has the rhythm of news from the front in the great worldwide competition and has economic growth for its arrow of time. It has the clarity of evidence with regard to what it requires and promotes, but it is marked by remarkable confusion as to its consequences. The other, by contrast, could be called distinct with regard to what is in the process of happening, but it is obscure with regards to what it requires, the response to give to what is in the process of happening. Clarity does not signify tranquility. At the moment when I began to write this text, the subprime crisis was already shaking the banking world, and we were learning about the non-negligible role played by financial speculation in the brutal price increases of basic foodstuffs. At the moment when I was putting the final touches to this text, mid-October 2008, the financial meltdown was underway, panic on the stock markets had been unleashed, and states who to that point had been kept out of the court of the powerful, were suddenly called on to try to re-establish order and to save the banks. I do not know what the situation will be when this book reaches its readers. What I do know is that amplified by the crisis, 
more and more numerous voices could be heard explaining with great clarity its mechanisms, the fundamental instability of the arrangements of finance, and the intrinsic danger of what investors had put their trust in. Sure, the explanation comes afterwards and it doesn't allow for prediction. But for the moment, all are unanimous. It will be necessary to regulate, to monitor, indeed to outlaw, certain financial products. The era of financial capitalism, this predator freed from every constraint by the ultra-liberalism of the Thatcher-Reagan years, would supposedly have come to an end, the banks having to learn their, quote-unquote, real business, again, that of servicing industrial capitalism. Perhaps an era has come to an end, but only as an episode belonging as such to what I have called the first clear and confused, quote-unquote, history. I don't believe that I'm kidding myself in thinking that if the calm has returned when this book reaches its readers, the primordial challenge will be to, quote, relaunch economic growth, unquote. Tomorrow, like yesterday, we will be called on to accept the sacrifices required by the mobilization of everyone for this growth, and to recognize the imperious necessity of reforms, quote, because the world has changed, end quote. The message addressed to all will thus remain unchanged. Quote, we have no choice. We must grit our teeth, except that times are hard and mobilize for the economic growth outside of which there is no conceivable solution. If we do not do so, others will take advantage of our lack of courage and confidence. End quote. In other words, it may be that the relations between protagonists will have been modified but it will always be the same clear and confused history. The order words are clear, but the points of view on the link between these order words that mobilize and the solutions to the problems that are accumulating, growing social inequality, pollution, poisoning by pesticides, exhaustion of raw materials, groundwater depletion, and so on, couldn't be more confused. That is why, in Catastrophic Times, written for the most part before the catastrophic financial collapse, has not had to be rewritten. Its point of departure is different. This is because to call into question the capacity of what today is called development to respond to the problems I have cited is to push at an open door. The idea that this type of development, which has growth as its motor, could repair what it has itself contributed to creating is not dead, but has lost all obviousness. The intrinsically unsustainable character of this development, which some had announced decades ago, has henceforth become common knowledge. This in turn has created the distinct sense that another history has begun. What we know now is that if we grit our teeth and continue to have confidence in economic growth, we are going, as one says, straight to the wall. This doesn't signify in the slightest a rupture between the two histories. What they have in common is the necessity of resisting what is leading us straight to the wall. In particular, nothing of what I will write should make us forget the indispensable character of big, popular mobilizations. Let us think of WTO protests in Seattle, for example, which are peerless for awakening the capacities to resist and to put pressure on those who demand our confidence. What makes me write this book doesn't deny this urgency, but responds to the felt necessity of trying to listen to that which insists obscurely. Certainly there are many things to demand already from the protagonists who are, today, defining what is possible and what isn't. 
While struggling against those who are making the evidences of the first history reign, however, it is a matter of learning to inhabit what henceforth we know, of learning what that which is in the process of happening to us obliges us to. If the by now common knowledge that we are heading straight to the wall demands to be inhabited, it is perhaps because its common character doesn't translate the success of a general becoming consciously aware. It therefore doesn't benefit from the words, partial knowledges, imaginative creations, or multiple convergences that would have had such a success as their fruit, which would have empowered the voices of those who had previously been denounced as bringers of bad news, partisans of a return to the cave. As in the financial crash, which gave the proof that the financial world was vulnerable in its entirety, it is the quote-unquote facts that have spoken, not ideas that have triumphed. Over the last few years, one has had to cede to the evidence. What was lived as a rather abstract possibility, the global climactic disorder, has well and truly begun." This appropriately named, quote-unquote, inconvenient truth has henceforth imposed itself. The controversy amongst scientists is over, which doesn't signify that the detractors have disappeared, but that one is only interested in them as special cases, to be interpreted by their acquaintance with the oil lobby, or for their psychosocial particularities. In France, for example, that of being a member of the Academy of Science, which makes them fractious with regard to what disturbs. Henceforth, we know, and certain observable effects are already forcing climatologists to correct their models, making the most pessimistic of predictions produced by the simulations become increasingly probable. In short, in this new era, we are no longer only dealing with a nature to be protected from the damage caused by humans, but also with a nature capable of threatening our modes of thinking and of living for good. This new situation doesn't signify that the other questions, pollution, inequalities, and so on, move to the background. Instead, they find themselves correlated in a double mode. On the one hand, as I have already underlined, all call into question the perspective of growth, identified with progress, which nonetheless continues to impose itself as the only conceivable horizon. On the other hand, none can be envisaged independently of the others any longer, because each now includes global warming as one of its components. It is indeed a form of globalization that it is a matter of, with the multiple entanglements of the threats to come. One knows that new messages are already reaching the unfortunate consumer, who was supposed to have confidence in economic growth, but who is now equally invited to measure his or her ecological footprint, that is to say, to recognize the irresponsible and selfish character of his or her mode of consumption. One hears it asserted that it will be necessary to change our way of life. There is an appeal to goodwill at all levels, but the disarray of politicians is almost palpable. How is one to maintain the imperative of freeing economic growth, of winning in the grand economic competition, while the future will define this type of growth as irresponsible, even criminal? Despite this disarray, it is always the very clear logic of what I have called the first history that prevails and continues to accumulate victims. The recent victims of the financial crisis, certainly, but also and above all the quote-unquote ordinary victims, sacrificed on the altar of growth to service of which our lives are dedicated, 
Amongst these victims, there are those who are distant, but there are those who are closer. One thinks of those who have drowned in the Mediterranean, who preferred a probable death to the life that they would lead in their country, quote, behind in the race for growth, end quote, and of those who, having arrived among us, are pursued as sans-papiers, illegal immigrants. But it isn't only a matter of others. Mobilization for growth hits, quote-unquote, our workers, submitted to intolerable imperatives of productivity, like the unemployed, targeted by policies of activation and motivation, called on to prove that they are spending their time looking for work, even forced to accept any type of quote-unquote job. In my country, the hunting season against the unemployed has been declared open. Public enemy number one is the quote-unquote cheat, who has succeeded in fabricating a life in the interstices. That this life might be active, producing joy, cooperation, or solidarity matters very little, or must even be denounced. The unemployed person, who is neither ashamed nor desperate, must seek to pass unnoticed because they set a bad example, that of demobilization and desertion. Economic war. This war, whose victims have no right to be honored, but are called on to find every means of returning to the front, requires all of us. This quasi-stupefying contrast between what we know and what mobilizes us had to be recalled so as to dare to put the future that is being prepared under the sign of barbarism, not the barbarism which, for the Athenians, characterized peoples defined as uncivilized, but that which, produced by the history of which we have been so proud, was named in 1915 by Rosa Luxemburg in a text that she wrote in prison, quote, Millions of proletarians of all tongues fall upon the field of dishonor, of fratricide, lacerating themselves while the song of the slave is on their lips, end quote. Luxembourg, a Marxist, affirmed that our future had as its horizon an alternative, socialism or barbarism. Nearly a century later, we haven't learned very much regarding socialism. On the other hand, we already know the sad refrain that will serve as a song on the lips of those who will survive in a world of shame, fratricide, and self-mutilation. This will be, unhappily, we have to, we have no choice. We have already heard this refrain so many times, most notably with regard to the sans-papier. It signals that what had to that point been defined as intolerable, quasi-unthinkable, is in the process of creeping into habits. And we haven't seen anything yet. It is not for nothing that the catastrophe in New Orleans was such a big shock. What is being announced is nothing other than the possibility of a New Orleans on a global scale, wind power and solar panels for the rich, who will perhaps be able to continue to use their cars thanks to biofuels. But as for the others... Dot, dot, dot. This book is addressed to all of us who are living in suspense. Amongst us... There are those who know that they ought to do something, but are paralyzed by the disproportionate gap between what they are capable of and what is needed. Or they are tempted to think that it is too late, that there is no longer anything to be done, or even prefer to believe that everything will end up sorting itself out even if they can't imagine how. But there are also those who struggle, who never gave in to the evidence of the first history, and for whom this history productive of exploitation of the war of social inequalities that grow unceasingly, already defines barbarism. It is above all not a matter of making the case to them that the coming barbarism is different, 
as if Hurricane Katrina was itself a prefiguring of it, and as if their struggles were as a consequence outmoded. Quite the contrary. If there was barbarism in New Orleans, it was indeed in the response that was made to Katrina, the poor abandoned whilst the rich found shelter. And this response says nothing of the abstraction that some call human selfishness, but rather of that against which they are struggling, of that which, after having promised us progress, demands that we accept the ineluctable character of the sacrifices imposed by global economic competition, growth, or death. If I dare to write, nevertheless, that they too are, quote-unquote, in suspense, it is because what Katrina can figure as a precursor of seems to me to require a type of engagement that, they had judged, it was strategically possible to do without. Nothing is more difficult than to accept the necessity of complicating a struggle that is already so uncertain, grappling with an adversary able to profit from any weakness, from any naive goodwill. I will try to make people feel that it would nevertheless be disastrous to refuse this necessity. In writing this book, I am situating myself amongst those who want to be the inheritors of a history of struggles undertaken against the perpetual state of war that capitalism makes rule. It is the question of how to inherit this history today that makes me write. If we are in suspense, some are already engaged in experiments that try to make the possibility of a future that isn't barbaric now. Those who have chosen to desert, to flee this quote-unquote dirty economic war, but who in fleeing seek a weapon, as Deleuze said. And seeking here means in the first place creating, creating a life, quote, after economic growth, end quote. A life that explores connections with new powers of acting, feeling, imagining, and thinking. Those who are doing this have already chosen to modify their manner of living, effectively but also politically. They do not live in the name of a guilty concern for their quote-unquote carbon footprint, but experiment with what betraying the role of confident consumer that is assigned to us signifies. That is to say, what it signifies to enter into a struggle against what fabricates this assignation and to learn correctly to reinvent modes of production and of cooperation that escape from the evidences of economic growth and competition. It is to them that this book is dedicated, and more precisely to the possible that they are trying to make exist. It will not for all that be a matter of making myself into their spokesperson, of describing what they are attempting in their place. They are perfectly capable of speaking for themselves because far from executing a return to the cave, as some have accused them, they are expert in the use of websites and networks. They have no need of me, but they do need others, like me. One should not expect from this book an answer to the question, what is to be done, because this expectation will be deceived. My trade is words, and words have a power. They can imprison in doctrinal squabbles or aim at the power of order words. That is why I fear the word degrowth, with its threatening arithmetic rationality. But they can also make one think, produce new connections, shake up habits. That is why I honor the invention of the names, quote, objectors to growth slash economic objectors, end quote. Words don't have the power to answer the question, that multiple and entangled threats of what I have called the second history on which we are embarked despite ourselves raises. But they can, and that is what this book will attempt, 
contribute to formulating this question in a mode that forces us to think about what the possibility of a future that is not barbaric requires. Chapter 4. The Intrusion of Gaia It is crucial to emphasize here that naming Gaia and characterizing the looming disasters as an intrusion arises from a pragmatic operation. To name is not to say what is true, but to confer on what is named the power to make us feel and think in the mode that the name calls for. In this instance, it is a matter of resisting the temptation to reduce what makes for an event, what calls us into question, to a simple problem. But it is also to make the difference between the question that is imposed and the response to create exist. Naming Gaia as, quote, the one who intrudes, end quote, is also to characterize her as blind to the damage she causes in the manner of everything that intrudes. That is why the response to create is not a response to Gaia, but a response as much to what provoked her intrusion as to its consequences. In this essay, then, Gaia is neither earth, quote, in the concrete, end quote, and nor is it she who is named and invoked when it is a matter of affirming and of making our connection to this earth felt, of provoking a sense of belonging where separation has been predominant, and of drawing resources for living, struggling, feeling, and thinking from this belonging. It is a matter here of thinking intrusion, not belonging. But why, one might then object, have recourse to a name that can lend itself to misunderstandings? Why not, one friend asked me, name what intrudes Oranos or Kronos, those terrible children of the mythological Gaia? The objection must be listened to. If a name is to bring about and not to define, that is, to appropriate, the name can nevertheless not be arbitrary. In this instance, I know that choosing the name Gaia is a risk but it is a risk that I accept because it is also a matter for me of making all of those who might be scandalized by a blind or indifferent Gaia feel and think. I want to maintain the memory that in the 20th century this name was first linked with a proposition of scientific origin. That is, it is a matter of making felt the necessity of resisting moving on from the temptation of brutally opposing the sciences against the reputedly non-scientific knowledges, the necessity of inventing the ways of their coupling, which will be vital if we must learn how to respond to what has already started. What I am naming Gaia was in effect baptized thus by James Lovelock and Lynn Margulis at the start of the 1970s. They drew their lessons from research that contributed to bringing to light the dense set of relations that scientific disciplines were in the habit of dealing with separately. Living things, oceans, the atmosphere, climate, more or less fertile soils. To give a name, Gaia, to this assemblage of relations was to insist on two consequences of what could be learned from this new perspective. That on which we depend, and which has so often been defined as the given, the globally stable context of our histories and our calculations, is the product of a history of co-evolution, the first artisans, and the real continuing authors of which were the innumerable populations of microorganisms. And Gaia, the living planet, has to be recognized as a being, and not assimilated into a sum of processes in the same sense that we recognize that a rat, for example, is a being. It is not just endowed with a history, 
but with its own regime of activity and sensitivity, resulting from the manner in which the processes that constitute it are coupled with one another in multiple and entangled manners, the variation of one having multiple repercussions that affect the others. To question Gaia, then, is to question something that holds together in its own particular manner, and the questions that are addressed to any of its constituent processes can bring into play a sometimes unexpected response involving them all. Lovelock perhaps went a step too far in affirming that this processual coupling ensured a stability of the type that one attributes to a living organism in good health, the repercussions between processes thus having as their effect the diminishing of the consequences of a variation. Gaia thus seemed to be a good, nurturing mother, whose health was to be protected. Today, our understanding of the manner in which Gaia holds together is much less reassuring. The question posed by the growing concentration of so-called greenhouse gases is provoking a cascading set of responses that scientists are only just starting to identify. Gaia, then, is thus more than ever well-named, because if she was honoured in the past, it was as the fearsome one, and she was addressed by peasants who knew that humans depend on something much greater than them, something that tolerates them, but with a tolerance that is not to be abused. She was from well before the cult of maternal love which pardons everything. A mother, perhaps, but an irritable one, who should not be offended. And she was also from before the Greeks conferred on their gods a sense of the just and the unjust, before they attributed to them a particular interest in our destinies. It was a matter instead of paying attention, of not offending them, not abusing their tolerance. Imprudently, a margin of tolerance has been well and truly exceeded. That is what the models are saying more and more precisely. That is what the satellites are observing, and that is what the Inuit people know. And the response that Gaia risks giving might well be without any measure in relation to what we have done, a bit like a shrugging of the shoulder provoked when one is briefly touched by a midge. Gaia is ticklish, and that is why she must be named as a being. We are no longer dealing only with a wild and threatening nature, nor with a fragile nature to be protected, nor a nature to be mercilessly exploited. The case is new. Gaia, she who intrudes, asks nothing of us, not even a response to the question she imposes. Offended, Gaia is indifferent to the question, who is responsible, and doesn't act as a writer of wrongs. It seems clear that the regions of the earth that will be affected first will be the poorest on the planet, to say nothing of all those living beings that have nothing to do with the affair. This doesn't signify, especially not, the justification of any kind of indifference whatsoever on our part with regard to the threats that hang over the living beings that inhabit the earth with us. It simply isn't Gaia's affair. That Gaia asks nothing of us translates the specificity of what is in the process of coming, what our thinking must succeed in bringing itself to do. It is a matter of thinking successfully, the event of an unilateral intrusion, which imposes a question without being interested in the response. Because Gaia herself is not threatened, unlike the considerable number of living species who will be swept away with unprecedented speed by the change in their milieu that is on their horizon, her innumerable co-authors, the microorganisms, will effectively continue to participate in her regime of existence, that of a living planet and it is precisely because she is not threatened that she makes the epic versions of human history in which man, 
standing up on his hind legs and learning to decipher the laws of nature, understands that he is the master of his own fate, free of any transcendence, look rather old. Gaia is the name of an unprecedented or forgotten form of transcendence, a transcendence deprived of the noble qualities that would allow it to be invoked as an arbiter, guarantor, or resource, a ticklish assemblage of forces that are indifferent to our reasons and our projects. The intrusion of this type of transcendence, which I am calling Gaia, makes a major unknown, which is here to stay, exist at the heart of our lives. This is perhaps what is most difficult to conceptualize. No future can be foreseen in which she will give back to us the liberty of ignoring her. It is not a matter of a bad moment that will pass, followed by any kind of happy ending in the shoddy sense of a problem solved. We are no longer authorized to forget her. We will have to go on answering for what we are undertaking in the face of an implacable being who is deaf to our justifications, a being who has no spokesperson, or rather, whose spokespersons are exposed to fearsome temptations. We know the old ditty, which generally comes from well-fed experts accustomed to flying, to the effect that, the problem is, there are too many of us. Numbers whose uh, disappearance would permit significant energy savings. But if we listen to Lovelock, who has become the prophet of a disaster, it would be necessary to reduce the human population to about 500 million people in order to pacify Gaia and live reasonably well in harmony with her. The so-called rational calculations, which result in the conclusion that the only solution is to eradicate the vast majority of humans between now and the end of the century, scarcely dissimulate the delusion of a murderous and obscene abstraction. Gaia does not demand such eradication. She doesn't demand anything. To name Gaia... That is to say, to associate an assemblage of material processes that demand neither to be protected nor to be loved, and which cannot be moved by the public manifestation of our remorse with the intrusion of a form of transcendence into our history, ought not especially to shock most scientists. They themselves are in the habit of giving names to what they recognize has the power to make them think and imagine, and this is the very sense of the transcendence that I associate with Gaia. Those who have set up camp in the position of the guardians of reason and progress will certainly scream about irrationality. They will denounce a panicky regression that would make us forget the, quote, heritage of the Enlightenment, end quote, the grand narrative of human emancipation shaking off the yoke of transcendences. Their role has already been assigned. After having contributed to skepticism with regard to climate change, think of Claude Allègre, they will devote all their energy to reminding an always credulous public opinion that it must not be diverted, that it must believe in the destiny of man and in his capacity to triumph in the face of every challenge. Concretely, this signifies the duty to believe in science, the brains of humanity, and in technology in the service of progress. Provoking their yelling is something that neither amuses nor scares me. The operation of naming is, therefore, not in the least bit anti-scientific. On the other hand, it may make scientists think and prevent them from appropriating the question imposed by the intrusion of Gaia. Climate scientists, glaciologists, chemists, and others have done their work, and they have also succeeded in making the alarm bells ring despite all attempts to stifle them, imposing an, quote, 
inconvenient truth, end quote, despite all the accusations that have been leveled against them of having mixed up science and politics or of being jealous of the successes of their colleagues whose work has succeeded in changing the world where theirs has been limited to describing it or even of presenting as quote unquote proven something that is only hypothetical. They have been able to resist because they knew that time counted and that it wasn't them, but that to which they were addressing themselves that, in fact, mixed up scientific and political questions, or more precisely, aimed at substituting itself for politics and imposing its imperatives on the entire planet. To name Gaia is finally to help scientists resist a new threat, one which this time would fabricate the worst of confusions between science and politics. That one asks them how to respond. That one trusts in them to define what is appropriate to do. Moreover, that is what is in the process of happening, but with other types of scientists. Nowadays, it is economists who have become active, and in a way which guarantees that, like many unwanted effects, the climate question will be envisaged from the point of view of strategies that are plausible, that is to say, are likely to make it a new source of profit. Even if this means being resigned in the name of economic laws, which are harsh, they will affirm, but which are laws, after all, to a planetary New Orleans even if it means that zones on the planet that are defined as profitable must at all scales from the neighborhood to the continent protect themselves by every means necessary from the mass of those who will doubtless be opposed to the famous, quote, we cannot take care of all the woes of the world, end quote. In short, even if the succession of sorry, but we musts, establishes completely and openly deployed the barbarism that is already in the process of penetrating our world. Economists and other candidates for the production of global responses based on science only exist for me as a power to harm. Their authority only exists to the extent that the world, our world, remains what it is, that is to say, destined for barbarism. Their laws suppose, above all, that we stay in our places, keep the roles assigned to us, that we have the blind self-interest and congenital incapacity to think, cooperate, that makes an all-azimuth economic war the only conceivable horizon. It would be completely pointless to name Gaia if it was just a matter of combating them. But it is a matter of combating what gives them their authority, of that against which the cry, another world is possible, was raised. This cry really hasn't lost any of its topicality, because that against which it was raised, capitalism, the capitalism of Marx, of course, not of American economists, is already busying itself concocting its own responses to the question imposed on us, responses that lead straight to barbarism. This is to say that the struggle assumes an unprecedented urgency, but that those who are engaged in this struggle must also face a test that they didn't really need, which, in the name of that urgency, they might be tempted to abstract out. To name Gaia is to name the necessity of resisting this temptation, the necessity of starting out from the acceptance of this testing challenge. We do not have any choice because she will not wait. Do not ask me to sketch out what other world may be able to come to terms or compose with Gaia. The response doesn't belong to us. That is, to those who have both provoked her intrusion and now decipher it through data, models, and simulations. Naming Gaia is naming a question, but emphatically not defining the terms of the answer. As such, a definition would give us, us again, always us, 
the first and last word. Learning to compose will need many names, not a global one. The voices of many people, knowledges, and earthly practices. It belongs to a process of multifold creation, the terrible difficulty of which it would be foolish and dangerous to underestimate, but which it would be suicidal to think of as impossible. There will be no response other than the barbaric if we do not learn to couple together multiple divergent struggles and entanglements in this process of creation, as hesitant and stammering as it may be. Chapter 6. Not Paying Attention The need to pay attention is apparently common knowledge. We know how to pay attention to all sorts of things, and even those who are attached most ferociously to the virtues of Western rationality will not refuse this knowledge to peoples whom they disqualify as superstitious. Furthermore, even animals on the lookout testify to this capacity. And yet, we can also say that once it is a matter of what one calls development or growth, the injunction is above all to not pay attention Growth is a matter of what presides over everything else, including, we are ordered to think, the possibility of compensating for all the damage that is its price. In other words, whilst we have more and more means for foreseeing and measuring this damage, the same blindness that we attribute to civilizations in the past, who destroyed the environment on which they depended, is demanded of us. They may not have understood what they were doing, and they did it only locally. We know that we are destroying to the point of scarcity resources constituted over the course of millions of years of terrestrial history, much longer for aquifers. What we have been ordered to forget is not the capacity to pay attention, but the art of paying attention. If there is an art, and not just a capacity, this is because it is a matter of learning and cultivating, that is to say, making ourselves pay attention making in the sense that attention here is not related to that which is defined as a priori worthy of attention, but as something that creates an obligation to imagine, to check, to envisage consequences that bring into play connections between what we are in the habit of keeping separate. In short, making ourselves pay attention in the sense that attention requires knowing how to resist the temptation to separate what must be taken into account and what may be neglected. The art of paying attention is far from having been rehabilitated by the precautionary principle, although the protests of industrialists and their scientific allies give us a foretaste of what that rehabilitation would signify. When one hears the protestations that continue today against this unfortunate principle, one can only be seized by a certain fright, as much because of the contempt they express in relation to a population defined as being scared of everything and nothing, calling for zero risk, as because of the feeling of legitimacy of those protesting, those brains of humanity who are charged with the task of guiding the human flock towards progress. Because this principle is apparently perfectly reasonable, it is restricted to affirming that in order to take into account a serious and or irreversible risk to health or the environment, it is not necessary that the, this risk be scientifically proven. In other words, what has provoked so much protest is limited to stating that even if the risk is not proven, one is supposed to pay attention. Health and environmental catastrophes have been necessary for the public powers in Europe to finally be constrained to acknowledge that a precautionary principle is well-founded. 
that some renowned scientists have been able to cry out betrayal, despite some catastrophes, casts a very strange and raw light on the situation that it is the ambition of this principle to reform. A paradoxical situation, as the necessity of paying attention where there are doubts. What one would require of a good father, what one teaches children, is defined here as the enemy of progress. Yet what makes those scientists cry out was rather timid because the precautionary principle respects the pre-coded stage on which it intervenes, a stage on which the task of judging the value of an industrial innovation is entrusted solely to its encounter with the market, and in which public powers only have the right to place certain conditions on this encounter. The principle is limited to extending this right a little, but doesn't modify the logic of the scenario at all. Evaluation continues to belong to the market and therefore only involves the criteria that the market accepts. As for the conditions in which the principle is applied, they are extremely restrictive. Not only must risks bear on health or the environment and therefore not concern, for example, the social catastrophes that an innovation can provoke, but the principle indicates that the measures that respond to the taking into account of the risk must be proportionate. One might think that proportionality would bear on any evaluation of the benefits of a techno-industrial innovation for the general interest, since that is what is in play with the risk. But no. What proportionality puts on stage is concern for the damages that the measures will entail for those who benefit from the sacred right of the entrepreneur, the sacred right of bringing things to market, of making them circulate. So, can Monsanto's right as an entrepreneur be questioned? on the pretext that GMOs clearly risk accelerating the proliferation of insects that are resistant to the pesticide loaded into plants? Certainly not. One is limited to enacting rules that aim to reduce the probability that such insects will appear, and to hoping that the agriculturalists concerned will obey these rules, which will permanently complicate their lives and reduce the profits they were banking on. Since prohibiting Monsanto's GMOs would be a disproportionate measure, no other choice can be envisaged. As for the socio-economic consequences of GMOs, there is no place for them. Ruining Indian peasant smallholders is not a serious or irreversible risk, even if they commit suicide. It is the price, harsh but necessary, of the modernization of agriculture. It will be said that it is entrepreneurial freedom that is at stake, and every entrepreneur will repeat the refrain, risk is the price of progress, today of competitiveness. But here is where we must slow down and pay attention. To agree to identify Monsanto with the entrepreneur whose heroic stance it claims, that of one who accepts the possibility of failure with a valiant heart, that of the Promethean man who is incessantly exploring what could become possible, is to allow oneself to be trapped by one of those dramatic stagings that are the trademark of master thinkers relating the intrusion of Gaia to the audacity of man who has dared to challenge the order of things, from which the consequences cascade, pushing us up against the wall. Have confidence in the genius of humanity, or curse it and repent. Well, well. But hasn't capitalism been forgotten? The heroic pose struck by Monsanto and others like it is misplaced, because when it is a matter of their own investments, it is security that they demand. Only the market, a veritable judgment of God, can be called on to put them at risk, not the question of consequences. That this judgment of God is itself rigged goes without saying. On the other hand, that these so-called entrepreneurs who assume the passion for what may be possible 
can demand that the question of possible consequences not constitute an argument entitled to put them at risk is what matters to me here. In order to separate those with whom we are dealing from this story about creative and audacious entrepreneurs, which they claim to be a part of, commanding us to choose between the adventure of humanity and fearful renunciation, I will call them entrepreneurs, the capital letter E signifying, as will be the case later with capital S science, that it is a matter of a facade that dissimulates a change of nature. We will not say that the entrepreneur has a Promethean confidence in progress which, quote, can mend whatever damage it may have occasioned, end quote, a confidence that compels us all to face the grandeur of man's vocation and his future, written in the stars. What the double scandal of the GMO event and the precautionary principle for our entrepreneurs and their allies teaches us is that it is not a matter of confidence. It really is a matter of a demand. Correlatively, relearning the art of paying attention has nothing to do with a sort of moral imperative, a call for respect or for prudence that we might have lost. It is not a matter of us, but of business, which the entrepreneur requires us not to meddle with. When Marx characterized capitalism, the big question was, who produces wealth? Hence the preponderance of the figure of the exploiter, capital E. This bloodsucker who parasitizes the living power of human labor. Evidently, this question has lost nothing of its currency, but another figure might be added without any rivalry to this first, corresponding to the injunction not to pay attention, including even when barbarism threatens. This figure is the entrepreneur, capital E, he for whom everything is an opportunity, or rather, he who demands the freedom to be able to transform everything into an opportunity, for new profits, including what calls the common future into question. This could be dangerous, is something that an individual chief executive officer might understand, but not the operative logic of capitalism, which will eventually condemn whoever recoils in the face of an entrepreneurial possibility. With the figure of the entrepreneur come two others, because the entrepreneur demands, and his demand must be heard and satisfied. These two figures are the State and Science, capital S. One could perhaps associate the moment when one can really talk about capitalism with the moment when an entrepreneur can count on a state that recognizes the legitimacy of his demand, that of a riskless definition of the risk of innovation. When an industrialist says, with the tears of the sacred in his voice, the market will judge, he is celebrating the conquest of this power. He doesn't have to answer for the consequences, which are possibly highly undesirable, of what is put on the market, except if these contravene a regulation explicitly formulated by the state, a scientifically motivated regulation that responds to the imperative of proportionality. As for science, capital S, which has been accorded a general authority for all terrains about the definition of the risks that must be taken into account, it has little to do with the sciences, small s. One will not be astonished that the experts who play this game know that their opinions will not be plausible unless they are balanced as possible, that is to say, give all due weight to legitimacy of the innovator who has, quote, made the investment, end quote. What is this capital S science, which intervenes here as the third thief, an arbiter tolerated by the entrepreneur with regard to his right to innovate? 
that is to say, too, with regard to to the right that he recognizes, albeit constrained and forced, the capital S state has to prohibit or regulate. If I have given it a capital letter, it is to distinguish it from scientific practices, and that not so as to exempt practitioners of any responsibility, to oppose experts in the service of power with disinterested researchers, but because with the coupling together of entrepreneur, state, and science, we are very close to the gilded legend that prevails whenever it is a question of the irresistible rise to power of the West. This legend, in effect, stages the decisive alliance between scientific rationality, the mother of progress of all knowledge, the state, finally free of the archaic sources of legitimacy that prevented this rationality from developing, and the industrial growth that translates what Marxists have called the development of the forces of production into an at last unbounded principle of action. It is from the grip of this legend that it is a matter of escaping, of course. And if the art of paying attention must be reclaimed, what matters is to begin by paying attention to the manner in which we are capable of escaping it. Here again, it will not be a matter of defining the truth of the state or of science, or of rewriting the real story behind the legend, but of activating questions that arise first of all from the moment in which we are living, from what it forces us to think, and also from what it asks us to be wary of. What it is a matter of being wary of are the simplifications that would still ratify a story of progress, including the one that enables us to see the truth of what we are facing. Whether this truth makes capitalism the only real protagonist, the relative autonomy of the authors being largely illusory, or makes the three protagonists the three heads of the same monster, which it behooves the interpreter to name, what is missing is the question, which has become crucial today, of knowing what might or might not be a resource for the task of learning once again the art of paying attention. Today, your readers were Sheena Wilson and Mary Elizabeth Luca. The Just Powers podcast was recorded at Campus Saint-Jean in Edmonton, Alberta, located on traditional Treaty 6 territory, and was made possible by support from Future Energy Systems Canada First Research Excellence Fund, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada funding, and the Cool Institute of Advanced Study. This podcast is produced by Just Powers, with production assistance from Jesse Beyer, and was recorded and mixed by Catlin W. Cusick at Sublet Sound.